Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds recently gave on Facebook Live. We are continuing our pre-Passover coverage. Today's topic is Judaism for Everyone, what the four sons of the Passover Seder can teach us about how we each can relate to Torah and Judaism. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. So, I want to begin with an idea that um, hopefully can be helpful during this period of time, during this corona isolation period of time. Um, and, um, and then we're going to get back into the Seder as well. Try to do every day just like one nice piece of Torah that you can use for Passover in general. It could be at your Seder. It could just be a Pesach concept. Um, and I might actually um, uh, use this a little later for my Parsha piece. Hang on one second. Uh, hello from David. Thank you. Dan Fizakov. Great learning Torah with you, Dan Fizakov. Um, okay. So I'm going to begin with a question. And it has to do with one of the Torah readings um, and has to do with the Exodus from Egypt. And you can share this at your Seder or you can ignore this at your Seder just for your own edification. And I do think this could be helpful now as well. Because the Torah reading revolves um, a number of the different Torah readings that you will not be hearing this Passover because unfortunately you will not, will not be congregating in our synagogues and we won't have the advantage of hearing the Torah read publicly. But the Torah reading on one of the, on the first of the second days of Yom Tif revolves around a very central event in Mitzrayim, in Yetziat Mitzrayim, in the Exodus, which is Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea. And it's a huge event. Uh, Chazal, our sages, speak about Kriyat Yamsuf in the most incredible terms, calling it a greater miracle than all the ten plagues combined. But the, but the question I always had is, why is this? Why isn't Kriyat Yamsuf simply treated like another plague? After all, the Egyptians are smitten by the splitting of the Red Sea. Remember, they tried to follow the Jews into the water, and the waters came crashing down on them, destroying the Egyptian legions. Welcome, Nathaniel Berman. So, the Egyptians are smitten, just like in the previous ten plagues, why do our sages and why do we to this day look at the splitting of the Red Sea as sort of a distinct miracle apart and separate from the first 10 plagues? And the answer that some suggest is that whereas the 10 plagues were accomplished through Moshe Rabbeinu, Eddie Zarabi's in the house, welcome my friend, that the first 10 plagues were accomplished through Moses, our teacher, Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea, was affected through the actions of someone from the people itself. From who? Now, I'll come back to this. When it comes to the makos, the turning of the Nile into blood, and the frogs here, there, and everywhere, and all of the incredible, welcome Jamie Levy, all the incredible miracles that took place that brought the Egyptians to their knees, it was always through Moses. Moses would wave his staff, and the children of Israel would sit back and watch as opposed to the splitting of the Red Sea, where the Medrash tells us, and anybody can throw it out there, how did the splitting of the Red Sea take place? I'll give you a little background. The Jews were panicking because they had left Egypt. Pharaoh had enough after these 10 plagues. He said, go, just get out of here. They leave. Pharaoh changes his mind. 
He sends his legions after the Jews to catch up with them, maybe to kill them, it seems. The Jews see the Egyptians coming on one side, they see the sea on the other side, and they're starting to freak out. They're starting to freak out. Moshe's praying, the Jews are panicking. And what's happening? And the Midrash, an important part of rabbinic literature, shares that Nachshon ben Aminadav, this anonymous figure, okay, he was a prince of one of the tribes, but he's not part of like Moses, Aaron, and the, you know, the, the elite, if you will, leadership that's been accomplishing all these things and the plagues and working with God to get the Jews out of Egypt. We've never heard of this man, really, until this point. Uh, he is mentioned as a Nasi, he's mentioned as a prince, but he is, at this point, some sort of anonymous figure steps out of the crowd and he starts walking into the water. Ah, now doesn't Moses raise his staff? The, the text says that, but the Medrash says, very good, Jessica. The text says that, that God tells Moshe to raise his staff, but what actually accomplishes, according to the rabbis, this miracle of the Red Sea splitting for the entire Jewish people? It's this man, Nachshon, walking, putting his toe into the water, putting his foot into the water, keeping on walking into the water until it reaches his ankle and then his knee and then his hips. And the Medrash says that the very moment when the water hits his nose and he just keeps walking, bam, that's when the water split. What does this teach? It teaches that when someone who is not Moshe, when someone who is not Aaron, Moses' brother, a citizen of the people emerges from the crowd and changes Jewish history for all time. And in doing so, right, and uh, Jonathan Brody's mentioning uh, another medrash that says that when the sea split, it split into 12 sections, so each tribe was able to walk through. And our sages teach that, this is extremely important, that Judaism is not supposed to only be led by the leaders. Nachshon represents a very fundamental Jewish teaching, that God isn't interested simply in having a relationship with his leaders. Chazal teach that God seeks out a relationship with each and every human being, and it, it implies almost in this medrash that God was kind of waiting for someone other than Moses and Aaron to participate in this drama. Everyone is supposed to have a relationship with Hashem. You know, I've always said this, that a rabbi, what is the Hebrew word for rabbi? A rav. A rav is not, is, is really just a teacher. A rabbi is not some kind of intermediary through one which needs to work in order to reach God, even though I've had a lot of situations where people, I've met people, a lot of people, like they start telling me their innermost secrets, they start confessing and admitting to me, you know, wrong, de wrong you know, doings and sins that they've committed. And, and I always say to them, I said, listen, I, I, I'm not a priest, you know, we, we don't believe in that. That's more of a Christian idea that you go to a, a priest and he can absolve you of your sins. A rabbi is here to teach. A rabbi is here to motivate other people to do Judaism themselves. Not for the rabbi or not for Moses or Aaron to do Judaism for you. I remember, and this still happens all the time, Rabbi, can you please pray for so-and-so? And I always say, and this is happening a lot with Corona, where people are sending me names to daven for, and I always say back, 100%, I'm here to, I'm going to daven. But it's more important, if you will, at least as important for you to daven than it is for me. I'd love to believe that my prayers are any more special than anyone else, but I honestly do not believe that. 
Prayer is about having a sincere, real relationship with your Creator, with Hashem. And uh, the job of rabbis is really to enable others to have their own relationship with God. And it's interesting because Judaism is the only monotheistic faith to make a claim to a mass revelation. Not to one or two prophets or saints, but to every single person in the community, to every man, woman, and child. And that is why Judaism is mitzvah-centered. Judaism is really focused on our behavior, on our actions. And it's imperative that each and every one of us do our own part and not look to the leaders and rabbis to do Judaism for us. The leaders and the rabbis are supposed to be inspiring people at this time and in general for others to do their own Judaism. But ultimately, we're here for you so that you have the proper relationship yourself. And that's why when Moshe asked Paro, excuse me, when Moshe was asked by Paro, mi v'mi ha'holchim, who are you going to take with you? You remember Moshe and Aaron when they went to Pharaoh? They said, we just want to leave for three days and we want to go worship our God in the wilderness. And Paro then says, mi v'mi ha'holchim, and, um, and, they say, and Moshe responds, I'm so sorry, Jill. Yeah. Can I just trouble you to close these doors? Yeah. I'm so sorry. I know you're working so hard. Thank you, sweetie. Just sorry. We just got another delivery. More food for the fam. More preparations for Passover. Hang on one second, guys. I'm sorry about that. So... Judaism is not just for the leaders. And that's why when Moshe was asked who is taking with him, who is, who is he going with him into the wilderness to serve God, he says, We're going to go with our children. We're going to go with our, our women. We're going to go with our entire families, all of us. Because it's a holiday for all of us. And this was not something that Paro understood. You know, it's really interesting. Paro immediately afterwards tells Moshe, this whole thing is a joke. This whole thing is a ruse, because if you're really going out to worship God in the wilderness, then why do you need to take anyone with you other than your elders? Because if you study the ancient religions of Egypt in antiquity, it was all about the priestly caste. The priests had to perform all of these rituals, and people would either watch them, and they would know they were doing them, and then the people would be okay. That is so antithetical to everything Judaism is about. The rabbis don't perform rituals for anyone else. We all perform mitzvot ourselves. We pray to God directly. We don't need rabbis as intermediaries. We may go to a rabbi for some inspiration, for some hope. And maybe a rabbi, you would think, is a little more... I showed this picture of myself with Lubavitch Rebbe. I showed it yesterday. I don't know why I keep showing this picture. But I went to the Rebbe here. This is many, many years ago, as you can see. And I went to him because my mother at the time was very ill. But I was davening for her. My mother, of blessed memory, was davening for herself. And I went to the Rebbe because he was a very, very holy and special person. And I thought maybe his blessing and his prayers could be more readily and favorably accepted. And there is such an idea of going to a tzaddik and asking a great righteous person to pray on your behalf, but not instead, in addition. And that's why Paro couldn't understand this because this whole religion in ancient Egypt was all about the elders and the priests and the leaders. So when Moshe said, we're all going into the desert, right, to worship Hashem, 
we're all going there. We're, we're you know, it's going to be men, women, children, the whole, the whole community. It's a holiday for everyone. Right away, Paro becomes suspicious. He's like, oh, you're just trying to break out. You're not, you're, this, is no, this is no spiritual retreat. Spiritual retreats are for the priestly caste. And Moshe was explaining to Paro, you don't understand what Judaism is about. Judaism isn't just for the leaders or the elders. It's for every single man, woman, and child. I once met a woman who was interested in converting to Judaism. And I remember she came on our ski retreat um, uh, in Vermont many years ago. And we were just uh, hanging out. I remember it was Motzei Shabbat. It was Saturday night. And, um, and I turned to her and I said, why are you doing this? Why are you interested in converting to Judaism? And she answered me, Rabbi, how many reasons do you want? I said, just give me one. She said, you know, Christianity is an institution. It's a great religion for the priests, she said, and that's the way I was raised. But Judaism, she said, gives me an ordinary person a relationship. Now, I don't mean to say that everyone who's a Christian doesn't have a real relationship with God, and it's just about their priests. That's the way this particular woman felt about Christianity growing up. And she was attracted to Judaism specifically because she felt it was for the Am, it was for the nation, it was for the people. It wasn't just for Moshe and Aaron, it was for Nachshon and all the other quote-unquote ordinary citizens of the nation. Mitzvot are, are there not just to build institutions, they're about building relationships. You know what's amazing about this corona crazy? We, we don't have our institutions right? The, the Jewish Center, MGE, the synagogues, the JCCs, our institutions of Jewish life are shut down. But what we still have is our Judaism. We still have our prayers. We still have our mitzvot observance. We still keep kosher. We still observe Shabbat. We still have a personal relationship with God. Salvechik famously said that there's no Judaism by proxy. You can't pawn it off on somebody else. You have to do it yourself because God wants a relationship with you. You can't commission someone else. You either do it yourself or you don't have it at all. And that's why Torah observance does not revolve around our leaders. And it's why Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea, was different than all the other plagues because it was accomplished by one of the ordinary citizens. And I will end this idea. We had some questions here. Did Moshe have any dialogue with Pharaoh or was it done through Aaron? Yes, Moshe had a lot of dialogue, actually, with Pharaoh. But if anybody knows... Oh, I just turned it around by accident. Sorry about that. Um, Jonathan Brody is asking a really good question. If anybody knows, why did Aaron go at all with Moses? Why did Aaron go with Moses? Because Moses, um, if you remember one or two days ago, I was talking about the scene at the burning bush when God came to Moshe and said, I want you to go to, back to Egypt and go to Pharaoh and demand the release of the Jewish people. Moshe didn't want the gig. I think I discussed this yesterday. And he said, I have a speech impediment. So what did Hashem say? Take Aaron. You think you have an issue with speech? Take Aaron and he'll be your spokesperson. So Aaron always went with Moshe. And I have a whole other drusha about this, a whole other idea. I'll give it to you on a, diff on a different day. Really interesting about how Moshe little by little transforms himself. From, being, from feeling insecure, from feeling inadequate, from feeling he was too less from being perfect for the job and growing into the position. His brother Aaron was there to help initially, but then Moshe basically took over. So that's just answering your question, Jonathan. Moshe, of course, had his own dialogue with Paro, but in the beginning, he needed Aaron. 
to feel more confident? Um, that's the way I would answer that question. Uh, I want to me mention one last um, idea. The Rambam, the great Maimonides, wrote, and please keep texting in the chat questions or thumbs up or hearts or any way you want to react or respond or talk to me while we do this. I'm looking at the screen, not simply to look at myself, but to see if you have any comments or questions or answers to the questions I pose. So there are, there are three crowns in Judaism. Thank you for the thumbs up. There are actually three crowns in Judaism uh, that Maimonides uh, speaks about, Keter Torah, Keter Kahuna, the Keter Malchut, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. Thank you, Rabbi Ezra. And of course, which is the greatest crown to wear? Now you would think the crown of kingship, to be a king like King David, and to have your family lineage all the way back to King David, like that's the only way you could be a king of Israel. Or to be a Kohen, to be a descendant of Moses' brother, Aaron, who we were just talking about. But the Rambam says that the third crown is the greatest one of all. Not the crown of kingship, not the crown of, of priesthood, but the crown of Torah. And you know why the crown of Torah is the greatest one, says the Rambam? Because it's muchan umu... Um, uh, 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 Oh, give me one second. The Rambam says, oh, I don't have the Rambam here. The Rambam says it's muchan umumad l'chol Yisrael. It is muchan, which means it's prepared, it is ready, it is standing full of Israel. Kol mishi yirtze It's my favorite line of the Rambam. I remember that by heart. Anyone who wants it can come and take it. Because malchus, kingship, and because kahuna, priesthood, are exclusive, they're only open to a certain group within the Jewish community. They're not as great as the crown of Torah, which is open and accessible to anyone who wants it. Kol Anyone who, w who wishes to have Torah in their life can have it. And that is the lesson of Nachshon. That's the lesson of Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea. It's the one non-plague, because it's the one thing affected by someone other than Moses and Aaron, by an ordinary citizen who steps into the sea and makes a difference for Jewish history. And that's really a wonderful lesson for all of us, to take Judaism into our own hands, to not allow it to remain in the hands of any kind of elite, but to practice it on our own. And I think we're doing that now. We're not allowing Judaism to simply remain for the institutions. I think I want to share this later, perhaps on my, um, my video. I'm going to go to the roof of my building and make a little uh, Parsha video today or something and I think this might be an interesting idea to share because I think it's important during Corona to, to see what are we still doing to keep ourselves Jewish? Without Jewish institutions, what does it really teach? It's an interesting idea. There's so much Judaism to do, which is doing, it's not as fun, clearly. The community makes it a lot more fun. And not just fun, the concept of davening but Sibor with a minion obviously is a big deal in Judaism. I'm not trying to poo-poo it. But if we can't go to shul, if we can't, I mean, a lot of rabbis were really struggling with this in the beginning, closing their shuls. I'm still very proud to keep repeating and sharing that MG was one of the first to close. We didn't have a program for Purim. And we are a young community of 20s and 30s. I guess we should be a little less fearful of, of the corona hitting our community. But I, I felt very, very strongly that we're going to be sharing it with others. And we need to be part of the solution and not the problem. Uh, and that's why we continue to continue, continue to encourage everyone to practice social distancing and to stay home as much as you can. And if you go out, put on a mask, wear gloves, 
stay six feet away from other people. We need to contain this thing. And the more we do that, the quicker this will pass, please God. Okay, so that is one idea I wanted to share. Um, any questions or comments, please, uh, please feel free. I'm just running through this. If there are any questions or comments, all the wonderful people that are on here, thank you for the thumbs up, whoever that came from. Um, okay, so we've been talking a little uh, about the Haggadah. I want to share with you something really, really powerful that is very much connected to what I just talked about that's in the Haggadah. It's one of my favorite parts of the Haggadah, and that is the four sons. Now, the four sons are these four different people that come to our Seder table. Um, I don't think I've shared this with you about the four sons yet. But what do you see? These four sons come and they, um, they each ask their question. Who are the four sons? You can just type them in if you would like. This is a question I'm posing to you. Who are they? Who are the four sons? Four different people at our Seder. And we're going to have smaller satyrs here. Uh, what if you are adopted by a Cohen or Levy? What is your status? What an interesting question, Jonathan Brody. Do you become a... I don't know the answer to that. I think you follow a Cohen or Levy by your bi biological father, not adopted. Uh, your adopted father is really considered your father, but I don't think you become a Kohen if you are an Israelite from your biological father and you're adopted. I'd have to look into it a little more, but I'm almost 100%. That would not confer kahuna, the priesthood upon you, um, through adoption. Just like it doesn't confer Judaism. Uh, if somebody uh, is not Jewish, let's say a baby is, is, is adopted by, par by Jewish parents, <laughs> I said kosher parents, by Jewish parents, um, that doesn't confer Jewish status upon the child. The child still has to be converted. I've actually been involved in a number of those conversions. They're very sweet, and the, and the parents have to raise the child um, Jewishly, send their kids to Jewish schools, and so on and so forth. So I do not think it, it uh, confers Kohen or Levi status upon a child simply because you're adopted. Um, now, the four different sons, who are they, guys? Throw them out. Chacham, the wise son, Russia the wicked son, Tom, the simple son, She'eno Yodeli Shol, the son that cannot even ask. Now, there are a lot of different understandings of these different types of personalities. We always like to say they're kids, but we know that we sometimes use children as excuses because they're really representing adults, different types of figures that you have at the Seder table. You have people that are very erudite and scholarly, sometimes very learned, very serious about their Judaism. Then you have people that are a little more skeptical, and question the whole thing, the, you know, the, the, calls him the wicked son, but it's somebody who's really sort of rejecting a lot of this. The Tom, the simple son, everything is black and white. You know, they don't really know so much about Judaism, but are there, and they're, they're, and they're good. And the She'ena Yodeli Shol is someone who's so, who, who has so little knowledge, they can't even ask the questions. But what's really beautiful, and this is very much along the lines of what I started to talk about today, is that everybody gets their questions answered. We don't start judging, you know, what the question is. You show up to the Seder, you ask a question, you get an answer. That's the most important lesson, first of all, I want to begin with. Because you know there is a fifth son. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin talks about the fifth son in his Haggadah, 
Uh, the Baba Cherebi spoke about the fifth son. That's the son who doesn't even show up. He or she is so removed from Judaism, they don't even come to the Seder. So we're just happy if people come, even if they, if they have different questions. And the Seder really has to be uh, uh, tailored for those who are, who, who, for those who are present. And our job is to make sure everyone is engaged and everyone's attention is aroused. The Haggadah speaks about these four different types of children, each asking their own question, each receiving their own answers. And it's not a one answer fits all. Because you know you can speak to different people about the same exact incident. We're all here to talk about the Exodus, what it was like to be slaves and then emancipated and freed. But that experience and the way we think about that experience is very different for different people. And that's really sort of a paradigm of Judaism. We're all talking about the same stories in the Torah. We're all speaking about the same people in our same history, but it hits us differently because we think differently. We have different parents. We have different backgrounds. We've been raised differently to think differently. And that's okay. That's okay. We are, um, we are, I'm not sure, Jessica, you wrote, I'm missing two. I'm not really sure um, what you're referring to there. Um, but it, it's, it's not a one answer fits all. And the Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, really quotes different verses for the answer to each of the different child's questions. And this is the same idea that was echoed in the Tanchuma, which is an important part of our rabbinic literature, which comments on the famous verse in the Torah, Moshe Yidaber, Moses spoke, Vahilokim Yaninu Bakol, and God answered with a voice. This is at the, the, the giving of the Torah at Sinai, that when God revealed the Torah to the Jewish people at Sinai, he, he spoke with a voice. Now we know that every word in the Torah is important. What does that mean God spoke with a voice? How else would God speak? How else could we hear God if he didn't use a voice? And the Tanchuma writes that God's voice was a special one because it came to each and every Jew according to their own capacity. The elders heard the voice according to their capacity. Uh, I understand what you were saying, Jessica. The elders heard the voice according to their capacity the young men according to theirs, the children according to theirs, the infants even according to theirs, the women, everyone according to their own. When the Torah was given at Sinai, God made sure that everyone could understand what was happening. It wasn't just for the big leaders and the elites. You know, we'll have different sections. The elites stand here, the other ones don't have to listen to the Torah. No, this goes back to my original point. My whole theme really for today is a Judaism for everyone. And in the same vein, the Haggadah has four different children representing four different parent-child dialogues, or I would argue, four different types of Jews who show up at the Seder to teach how the Torah recognizes different types of people with different questions, and everyone gets an answer. And although the wise son's question is posed in a more sophisticated way than the simple son's, it's not like we ignore the simple son because he's not interesting to talk to. Let me pay attention only to the chacham, to the wise son. Each asks and each gets a response because they each bring something different and unique. The wise son, of course, brings his profound and inquisitive mind. And you know what? The simple son also brings something important. He brings his readiness and his purity of faith. Sometimes, you know, it's good to have someone who's just simple faith isn't so complicated about everything. The Chacham is this brilliant scholar, but like, it's a little more complicated, maybe all over the place. The simple one is like, just tell me what I need to do. I already believe and I want to follow this. And one of the commentaries on the Mechilta 
important rabbinic source writes that the opposite of the wicked son is not the wise son. He says it's the simple son. Because the simple son is ready and willing to serve God in his utter simplicity, to accept every aspect of the Torah, even the non-rational parts, which the wicked son mocks. And yes, even the wicked son receives an answer. Even after denying the foundation of our faith, he receives an answer because he shows up. The great Hasidic master, the Slonimer, says that the paragraph before the four sons, we say, Baruch HaMakam Baruch Baruch It's a beautiful song. Blessed is God, blessed is He, and the word Baruch is repeated, blessed, four times. Why? Because we're about to introduce the four sons. Because every child is a blessing. Every child is a bracha, even the rebellion one is a bracha. If he's there, it's a blessing. Don't write him off. Now, I never understood the answer that we gave to the Russia. The Russia gives a very kind of chutzpah question. He says, What is this thing that you're doing? What is this nonsense you guys are observing? He's at the Seder table, but he's kind of like sitting like this. He's like, what, what is this? You know, he's there, but he's like, so you're supposed to answer him that in a very, very kind of harsh way. He says that you're supposed to say by excluding yourself from the community, you know, that you would have been, had you been in Egypt, you would have been one of those Jews that would not have made it out of Egypt. And it also says, blunt his teeth. It's kind of like a harsh way of referring to him. Um, now, how do we understand this? So there are a couple of ways of explaining this. Number one, maybe sometimes if somebody is like a little tough and anti, uh, being a little of a wuss and being, oh, I just love you and you're just so wonderful, but you, you just mocked my religion and, and you're sitting here in a very negative, you know, creating this negative energy at the Seder table, I'm just gonna accept that with love. You know, maybe you need to come back to the guy and say, you know what, you need to pay attention. This is good stuff. You don't want to be one of those Jews that were not redeemed, but you know, because you want to be with the game. But the idea of blunting his teeth. So Rav Sarutskin, a great rabbi, wrote, he says, you have to ask yourself, what led this person to get to that place, to become this Russia? And there are two types of wicked people. There are two types of people um, is he a mumar l'teavon or mumar l'hachas? Is he doing this l'hachas? You ever hear that expression? Don't be a l'hachas. L'hachas means he understands exactly what he's doing. And he's opposed to it. And he's rejecting it. And he's trying to be sort of like a chutzpah kind of person. Or he's just sort of caving in to his evil inclination. We all have a sort of a dark side. We have a side of us that gets a little cynical, that gets a little negative, And... Uh, He's letting that get the best of him, or he's attracted to the physical world too much, and he's just absorbed in that, and he can't appreciate the spirituality of the Seder. So Rav Sarutskin says that's the kind of Russia we're talking about. We're not talking about in-your-face rejecting Judaism. It's not a mumar lahachis, it's a mumar l'teavon. You know, you, you wish somebody l'teavon when they're eating a meal, it's lunch now. If you're eating something, I wish you betevon, party appetite. He's just doing it because he's got an appetite for physicality. He's attracted to the physical world. So that's why it says you blunt his teeth. You prevent him a little from enjoying the physical world. You say, put down the food for a minute. Put down the drink 
Stop in, in, indulging so much in physicality so you can listen to this beautiful spiritual idea. You're too immersed. Judaism, you know, we sanctify the physical. We're not, we don't deny it and we're not afraid of it, but it can, if, if, if we don't restrict it to some degree, it can get the best of you. And it, it can prevent you from being involved in spirituality. That's the whole idea of the Nazir, of someone who takes upon himself added restrictions because he's too engulfed in physicality. So that's Rav Sirotskin, which is that you blunt his teeth. The teeth is the way we chew food. It's representing the idea that like, you need to get your friend, your colleague, to put the food down long enough to pay attention to what we're saying because he's just so engrossed in physicality. I heard another beautiful idea. I'm gonna definitely I'm going to share this. I'm doing a mock Seder, by the way, next Monday night. Anybody's interested, I do, do it. I'm going to do it right here at my Seder table. And... Um, this is a beautiful idea I saw in the, in the Haggadah of Shlomo Karbach. I have about 15 Haggadahs. One of my favorite ones is from Shlomo uh, Karbach. And he says something interesting. Russia, look at the Hebrew words. Resh shin ayin. The Hebrew word for evil or wicked is, a, a wicked person is a Russia. But he says something really interesting. He says, hakeat shinav, he's supposed to blunt his teeth. Look at the ends of the word. It's only got three letters, resh, shin, ayin. If you take the resh and you take the ayin at the end, that spells ra, which is wicked or bad. And that's sort of on the exterior. That's kind of what you and I are seeing. But deep down, says Shlomo Karbach, based on the Belzer Rebbe's Torah, great Hasidic rabbi, inside is something sweet. They used to say this like about a sabras. Why they call Israelis like sabras? Because sometimes they can be a little tough and prickly on the outside. But inside there's something very, very beautiful and sweet. It's the same idea with Russia. That there's something on the outside which is somehow the way that that person is interacting with us. What we're seeing is this rough exterior. But inside is something beautiful. In the heart of every Jew... There's the pintle year, there's something very, very beautiful. What we have to do is we have to knock the shin loose. The shin is the what's inside, between the resh and the ayin on the exterior on the exterior, you have the shin. So hakeat shinav, it's a play on words. You have to knock, blunt his teeth. Shin is shinaim or teeth, but shin is the middle letter in there. You have to break, blunt his teeth, knock the shin loose, knock out what's inside, bring out what's dormant and latent, what's inside the Jew, which is so beautiful. And don't get too distracted but sometimes by what you see on the external. Hakeat Shinav, beautiful idea. My friend uh, George Rohr, uh, who helped me start MGE, and with whom I'm still very, very close with, and gives me a lot of chizuk, um, and helps MGE continue, always, these last 21 years. He told me that he once went to Lubavitcher Rebbe with whom he had a relationship. And he went to Lubavitcher Rebbe years ago boasting of the 180 people at his High Holidays beginner service. He runs the High Holiday uh, beginners programs at KJ for many years where we have our Eastside program. And uh, they have six, 700 people at the High Holiday services now. But back then he had 180, which was still a pretty solid number. And he told the Rebbe, we got a hundred Jews with no background in Judaism. And the Rebbe got very upset. With no background in Judaism? He says, what Jew has no background in Judaism? 
Every Jew has a background in Judaism. Every Jew is from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every Jew is from Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Every Jew has that within them. The DNA that we are made up of. We have unbelievable history. And the Ra, or the negativity, or the, what we, the Kabbalists call the Klipot, the peel, that sometimes you know, blocks the beauty that lies within. It's covering up the shin. You know, the shin has three arms, representing the three patriarchs. So we need to break the shin. We need to break the patriarchs that's in the heart of every Jew. And this is a beautiful idea that's expressed in the writings of the Tanya. Um, the writings of the Tanya, I'm just reading every time I log on, you're talking about the Rebbe. Yeah, well, as I get older, the Rebbe's teachings uh, just have more and more impact and effect on my, on my hashkafa, on my outlook and my attitude. So I'm learning, um, one of the svarim I'm learning with, with my sons is, is the, the Tanya, which was written by the first Lubavitch Rebbe. Um, and uh, he writes about how within each and every one of us we have this powerful connection with Hashem. We just have to access it. We don't have to superimpose it or, or, you, know, or, or um, you know, sort of force it on other people. We have to bring it out. I'm not going to do this now, today, but there's another amazing teaching from the Lubavitch Rebbe that we'll get to uh, maybe tomorrow or on Sunday that speaks about how um, each of us has within us this latent, extraordinary spiritual potential, but it gets covered up in our lives. Uh, Jessica Jessica's saying, can the event like this break someone who has shown evil actions in the past? I think that's a great question. You know, it's so interesting that an event like a Seder, you never know what is going to enable something, what is going to wake somebody up. But we always think like, oh, I got to, and I do this a lot in my work and outreach. You know, I'm a more rationally oriented individual. I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, and I love to try to as a God, convince people that, that God wrote the Torah. And, and I still do it, and I think it's important. But there is a belief and it's not about convincing, it's about helping people find that. And uh, I truly believe that we have that belief within us. There's just a lot of covering. And we have to kind of push through it in order to get to some of these beautiful concepts. Um, there are some other questions here that were being asked. Um, so I do think there are certain things in life. God forbid somebody, sometimes tragedy strikes. Somebody loses, a God forbid, a loved one. And they go to shul to start saying the Kaddish, and all of a sudden, it opens something up. Um, the book, actually, um, Kaddish, written by Leon here, he talks about his own personal return to Judaism, which got sparked by the, 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 the passing of a parent, which brought him to synagogue, and he never went to synagogue before. He was the editor of The New Republic, a real intellectual of our generation, Leon Wieseltier. I read a lot of his writings. And somehow that opened him up. Sometimes it's something somebody else says, and as Jessica, as you, you're alluding to here, it could be the Seder, and you never know what kind of event it could be. And by the way, it's not just talking about someone who's cynical and doesn't believe, it could be for us. Sometimes we're feeling a little down, we're not feeling so spiritually charged, and says something, and you're like, oh, wow. Or you meet somebody, and that person's experience with you just really helps 
Rabbi Moshe Resnick, welcome. Oh, not Rabbi Robert. <laughs> just gave you smicha. Okay, so I'm just looking at some of the other questions here, um, and I think I think that's a really important lesson. That um, um, the Haggadah is really teaching us to first and foremost have a Judaism that works for everyone, and that isn't just for the Chacham, not just for Moses and Aaron but literally for each and every man, woman, and child. Um, I want to mention one or two other things and we'll finish up about the four sons. Um, there are some who actually view the four sons not as representing four different people, four different types, actually one person going through four different stages of their life, right? Think about it. A child is born as someone who cannot even ask. The small child then grows a bit and now he can ask, but things are a little simple-minded. Remember my kids were little, we'd watch a show, you know, daddy, is he good? Is he bad? Well, I was like, well, he's a little of both. It's complicated, right? And that's the way we are. We're a composite of the Yetzirah, the Yetzirah Tov. But a kid, when he's growing up, is a Tom, simple. Everything is black and white, good or bad. And as the child continues to mature into his adolescent years, he goes through this period, really, of rebellion, of rejection. During adolescence, very, very complicated time, where we start rejecting or calling into question, challenging some of the basics that we always, you know, were raised to believe in. And of course, we pray that our children continue on to the final phase so that a, of being a wise son, someone who's sincerely uh, in, inquisitive for wisdom and for knowledge and spends the rest of their times learning and growing. So the four sons can be looked upon not as just four different categories, but actually uh, different stages of one's life. I want to mention one last thing, which is really, really important. Um, about gratitude, and I'm going to come back to this uh, tomorrow also. We'll pick up on this idea. One of the great themes running throughout the Seder, which is expressed when we say the Hallel, which is a very important prayer that we say at the, at the Seder. The Hallel gets broken up with the meal in between. Um, and also my favorite song, Dayenu, Day, Dayenu, Day, Dayenu. So um, it's a theme of gratitude. We're supposed to take the Seder to really feel grateful for the things that we have in our lives. And that's why the uh, Dayenu song, if you notice, I have the Dayenu here, it breaks up all the little different things. They're not little. All the big things that God did for the Jewish people. But we, we're very, very specific. We don't just say, you know, God, who brought us out of Egypt and brought us to the land of Israel. No, we chop up all the things. Had God brought us out of Egypt but not helped us with, against the Egyptians, that would have been enough. Had God helped us against the Egyptians, but it didn't do the other thing, that would have been enough. Now, is that true? Would it have been enough? Not really. We want the whole thing. But what we're trying to do is break apart all the different things that Hashem did for our ancestors so we can feel gratitude for everything. And I've shared this many times. I heard this from my friend. I don't know if Rabbi Ezra is still on watching. But Ezra likes to say that when you go to someone's home for a meal and you say, thank you for dinner, it was lovely. And you leave, that's very nice. You've expressed gratitude. But that's more of a, like an Emily Post kind of courtesy. If you want to really express gratitude, you need to drill down and get specific. You know the chicken that you served tonight was so delicious. Could you share the recipe with me? And it seemed to have a spice. It was just amazing. I loved it. Thank you. When you get more specific, it resonates so much more with the other person and with yourself. Because you realize it wasn't just, thanks for the grub, I'm out of here. It's like this person had to sit and cook this chicken and think about the spices that they put in there. And they had to do this. Now, you don't have to go crazy, but that's really what the night of the Seder is. And that is also expressing gratitude. And I would argue, 
even though perhaps we're a little more troubled and challenged this year at the Seder, that we perhaps can feel a little more, a little more gratitude for the simpler things if we are, please God, have our health. I want to just see some of the other questions. Um, yes, my wife, Jill, makes amazing food. Thank you, Andy. You haven't eaten it in quite a while, but please God, that'll change soon, hopefully. Developing an attitude of gratitude is such an important thing, and it's a very big part um, of the Seder. I want to also just uh, mention that we are uh, a one sheet of 10 different things that you can do if you're alone at your Seder. Unfortunately, there are going to be a number of MGEers alone at their Seder, and there are going to be some older people also. So I got together with Rabbi Levine, and the two of us are working on um, how we can help people that are alone at the Seder. And one of the things I'm really proud to share, we're going to be working on having my dear friend in L.A., um, Rabbi Yonah Bookstein, he's an awesome rabbi in L.A., uh, who's going to be coming live on Zoom. So you can just put on your Zoom from before Yom Tov, turn off the video and turn off the audio, and but you can then watch and listen to Rabbi Bookstein go through the whole Seder, and he's going to do it in real time. It won't be the holiday for him over there, so that's why he can be caught on camera. But we ideally should not, I guess, use the camera or the audio, just, but you'll have somebody with you doing the Seder, who, and he's very entertaining, he sings nicely, be with his family, and you can kind of like join him. It was like a sort of a creative way that we're trying to do this. The other thing is I'm doing a mock Seder on Monday night. You're all welcome to come. I'm going to give you guys more information about the Seder. Um, that'll be 8 o'clock Facebook Live, um, Manhattan Jewish Experience with the Rabbi Mark Wilde's page or Mark Wilde's page, um, that you can uh, go on and just get information about the Seder. Also, Rabbi Avi, uh, our Eastside uh, MG Director, Shuki and Ezra, all working hard to be able to provide resources to keep all of us connected and growing and as spiritually as possible. Uh, also, I want to uh, thank Benjamin, uh, who's been very, very helpful to me um, and I want to thank Atara also. Um, I just came out with my podcast. It's called Wildscast. And uh, Binyamin, I think, posted it. Uh, some of these classes are on there. We're going to be taking a lot of my lectures and putting it on there. And I'm also going to be doing some interviews um, probably after the holiday because I'm too crazed between now and the holiday, which is next Wednesday night. But Nedder, we got Yossi Klein Halevi. Uh, he's an unbelievable writer. I uh, came out with a very important book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, and he's agreed to an interview. I've got some interesting uh, therapists, um, one sex therapist and one therapist in general who's focusing a lot of her work on, uh, on dealing with corona. I'm going to be interviewing my podcast, which I'm really excited about putting out there for all of you to be able to enjoy. Um, some other questions or comments before we sign off here. Did you see the movie that was made that you are in about the Rebbe? Andy. I, I, I know. Now you should just know that this could be, this is interesting. When this picture was taken, this is a long time ago, my brother was with me. I went with my mom, a blessed memory, with my dad and my brother. And um, when we met the Rebbe, so my brother met uh, with him before me. And my brother was wearing a very cool hat. This is a long time ago. This is like 25 years ago, probably now. And um, my brother uh, had a very cool hat on and someone took a picture and it made it onto the front page of the New York Times magazine section. 
very cool blow-up shot of my of the Rebbe with my brother. So I thought maybe that was in it, but maybe I'm in it too. Who knows? Um, so uh, I'd love to see that if you can send me. Uh, someone had a question here. Can an event like this? Yeah, we saw that question. Uh, Jill, can you post the Zoom link? What Zoom link are you referring to? Just tell us what you're referring to. Um, okay, not sure. Oh, but thank you, Leah, for saying that's beautiful. I appreciate that. Okay, guys, I really appreciate all of the input and the back and forth. Some of these things are on going to be on the podcast too. So I apologize if I'm sometimes trying to keep it. I'm thinking about the audio listeners as well on the podcast, but I'm trying to make this interactive with all of you. I want to invite all of you to come back to us tomorrow again at 1230 for Lunch and Learn. And tomorrow morning, uh, my son Yosef is going to be doing his pre-Shabbat meditation. He's been doing that last two weeks. Been a nice group joining. 8.45 in the morning. We did that specifically. Um, I can get you that picture, David Poppers, if you would like. The picture with my brother at some point. Um, I, I can dig that up. My, my Michael has that somewhere, my brother. It's a really cool shot. Um, uh, what was I just going to tell you? Um, oh, tomorrow morning, 8.45 to about 9, 10.00, 9.15. Yosef will be right here doing his meditation. Um, it's a nice way to get yourself ready for Shabbat in the morning. Um, and if you're working, we did it early. 6.15, I'm going to be back with Kabbalat Shabbat. We're going to be strong tomorrow night. Really psyched and excited about that with guitar, with bongos. Got my kids. We're going to sing it together. Jill's going to light the Shabbos candles, do that together with her. And we're going to bring in Shabbos together as a community. And on Motzi Shabbat, um, I have to look. I think I think we're going to be making Havdalah, I think at 8.15. I, I need to get you the exact time. Pretty sure it's going to be at 8.15 Havdalah um, this week um, to join us here at Facebook Live on Saturday night. And we'll continue all next week until Pesach with uh, Facebook Live Lunch and Learns. Thank you all for joining me. And, um, oh, Rachel is saying that tonight Adina is going to be making potato kugel. Okay, one of our excellent educators will be making potato kugel at 6.45 on uh, MJE's Facebook Live page. How could you miss? Adina is a great scholar, um, and she's also an amazing cook, actually. Uh, a lot of our MGEs have been to her home. So she'll be teaching you how to make potato kugel at 6.45. How could you have Pesach without potato kugel? You need to be back here with us tonight, 6.45. Have a wonderful and blessed day. Stay healthy, stay strong. Call someone who needs your help a little, who could use a little chizuk. Make sure you do that. Make sure you exercise today. Make sure you eat healthily. Stay healthy, stay strong, and stay with us. All the best. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.